Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, a really, really important conversation. Not long ago and far away, but a number of years ago, my book of the summer was a sleeper. I did not expect the excellence of stewardship by John Taft. He is Baird Vice Chairman, of course, a legacy of this American politics and this Wall Street as well. And it was a primal call by John Taft about the state of Wall Street. We're thrilled that we could revisit with John Taft on stewardship in a time of free. John, a year ago or so, I opened the Wall Street Journal and one page was free trading and the next page was free trading and the page after that was free trading. Everything's free now and look at the mess we're in with order flow. How do we extract ourselves from all the disaster we've seen from order flow back to something or forward to something more normal? Well, you're talking about payment for order flow, which is the engine that powers a lot of these quote unquote free uh, retail trading platforms. And Tom, I've always had, uh, I've felt that payment for order flow was a a smelly practice. It's legal. Um, It has to be married with all sorts of controls and assurances that you're getting best execution. But if if you're selling off customer uh, order flow, and uh, getting paid for that, uh, how does that not create a conflict with your uh, obligation to get the best execution for your clients? Um, I think you're seeing on the part of our new, very capable, very aggressive SEC chairman, Gary Gensler, a commitment to look at that along with many of the other uh, troubling uh, issues surrounding retail trading. Would you suggest that the leadership of Wall Street, of which certainly you're a voice of and part of, support Mr. Gensler and let's get to this to get some confidence back in trading away from the meme stocks? Absolutely. I I think very highly of the SEC chairman. He's certainly one of the most knowledgeable, game-ready SEC chairman we have had. And he's already laid out a pretty clearly what his agenda is. All makes sense to me. Uh, greater transparency around uh, uh, short selling, greater transparency around the use of uh, total return swaps uh, and uh, pay- payment for order flow, gamification. They're all on his radar. And yes, I think we should get at all of this because, Tom, what we found in the past, uh, we've seen it over and over and over again. It's partly what stewardship is about is that our industry has a habit of of taking uh, legitimate practices that that do make a positive difference in the world and and running them to excess. And every time we do that, we get in trouble and our clients and customers get in trouble and society gets in trouble. And you can see some, some indications here of commercial excesses are reappearing in the financial markets, and, and I find those troubling, and I look for 
regulators to try to tamp those down before they cause a big problem. John, the focus right now is shifting away from some of the trading activity to why there hasn't been more lending in the banking sector. And as someone who is perfect to speak to the nexus between banking and politics, given your great-grandfather being the president of the United States, there is a question here of how banks will shape themselves going forward as the lenders, as helping to generate some of the recovery through, uh, through some of the extensions to Main Street. How do you expect that to be transformed in terms of the lack of lending demand, the lack of uh, demand from borrowers to where we are now? Well, a couple of things are going on. Obviously, the post-COVID softness in the economy led to a decline in, in demand for traditional lending. But Lisa, one of the things that we've seen going on is there's, there's plenty of money uh, available to be lent. It's just being lent out of the non-bank or shadow financial sector. Private equity funds, uh, hedge funds are, are lending. And part of the reason for that is that, that during the financial crisis, the focus was legitimately and appropriately on uh, making sure that banks didn't behave in ways that, that almost brought a, a systemic meltdown. And as a result, all sorts of capital requirements and restrictions were put on regulated financial institutions, just like squeezing a balloon. You squeeze it at one end, uh, it, it grows at the other end. And so we've seen capital available for lending moving out of the regulated to the unregulated banking sector. What I would like to see is, uh, and, you're, and, and there is some of this going on, or was, let me put it, uh, during the Trump administration, remains to be seen what happens uh, during the Biden administration, is for regulators to take a, take a deep breath, say, okay, we actually here uh, uh, oversaw a success story. We oversaw uh, the rebooting of the financial sector. We put it on sounder footing, safer, sounder, more stable than it's been in a long time. Can we take some steps to make it easier for regulated financial institutions for do the, to do the job that fin, uh, society wants them to do? Are we being too restrictive? Well, and that's sort of a counterintuitive to the regulators uh, in place now under the Biden administration. But I think that's what's needed well, uh, at this point. It's sort of a relook at Dodd-Frank, not a, not a reinstitution of Dodd-Frank. So on the flip side, do you think that systemic uh, risk has built up in the shadow banking system? Yeah, certainly a lot of people are worried about that. And yes, I think that... Um, uh, there are indications that, as there always are, risk-taking is uh, being pushed to dangerous levels in, in some areas of the unregulated financial uh, sector. You just saw one uh, in the explosion of Archegos, and uh, what was the risk being taken there? Well, it was embedded in total return swaps around which there isn't the same transparency and there aren't the same disclosure obligations as there are with, uh, with normal uh, stock positions, major stock positions in publicly traded companies. And those kinds of uh, holes in the system uh, sometimes can, can destabilize the financial system. Now, that wasn't big enough. The banks took heavy losses, but you know they weren't they weren't system threatening, weren't even institution threatening. But yes, I worry about excesses building up. They always do. We have a number of organizations like FSOC and uh, various research capabilities that we didn't have going into the mm. financial institutions, supposed to be scanning for risk. Are they? Let's hope so.
You know, I was reading, uh, John, a story yesterday about Representative Tom Suozzi from New York. He's pushing for a 2.5% levy on wealth of more than $50 million. He says it's a one-off, um, but we know how those things go. Interestingly, your great-grandfather was a champion of the 16th Amendment, brought in the federal income tax for, for really the first time um, in 1913. What do you think about now... Uh, transitioning to or adding on a wealth tax? Boy, <laughs> it never fails. You get me to talk about politics on, on surveillance. You know, my, my PR people say, don't talk about politics. Don't, don't, don't talk about your Republican legacy. I guess here, here's the way I feel. I'm, uh, and I think a lot, of, a lot of Americans and people in the financial services industry feel this way, is we're, we think taxes, uh, can make sense if they are used to invest in productive assets in the real economy that make the economy grow faster. Let's face it, unless you want to look at something like long-term inflation, uh, the only uh, uh, viable way out of the hole we've dug ourselves in the course of the last uh, three or four years is to grow our way out of it. And if raising taxes and putting that money to work in a solid, uh, legitimate infrastructure package is something that Congress can find their way to do, then that's great. If, on the other hand, wealth tax is being used to fund more social spending, then we're just digging the hole we're in deeper. And so it really depends what is going to be the use of a tax increase, uh, whether it's one time or capital gains or ongoing income tax increase. Uh, I would just point out that uh, William Howard Taft, though, his his focus was on corporate income taxes, not personal income taxes. John Taft, thank you so much. With Bear, their vice chairman there on order flow and on uh, some of the moments we've seen, such as Archegos uh, this morning. He is again uh, with uh, Bear. Right now, this is a really important conversation. Sarah Hunt with us with Alpine Woods Capital Investors. And what's so great about it, this is in the trenches of portfolio uh, construction versus sort of the econo babble that's out there right now. Sarah Hunt, I am absolutely fascinated with how you perceive big tech. We saw the Apple surge yesterday. Is this big tech unloved or are we just climbing on board the mega move that we saw of 18 months ago? Well, I think you had a long pause in some of those big tech stocks. I mean, you look at Apple, you go back to September of last year, and you were basically at levels that were just around where we are now. So that's had some time to digest that fact that it was higher for, they had a huge swing up and then everything sort of slowed down and paused on the big tech side while people went and looked at what else is happening in the economy. So they started looking at cyclicals, they started looking in other areas. I think what you're seeing now is the realization that with rates now starting to back off after reaching a high of, I think, 175 on the 10-year the other day, or a couple of weeks ago, that you're starting to see people go back to those tech stocks because the growth is still there. And in the end, I think that's what really matters. Because as much as we can look at the different parts of the economy, there's still everything we have is more and more involved with tech. There's semiconductors in almost every single thing we buy these days. So I don't see that the tech space is not a good beneficiary of whatever is happening in the economy, as long as that's good news for the economy. Sarah, where is the greatest degree of undue complacency in markets right now? 
Wow, that's a tough one. Um, I think that I think you know, go back to your Fed discussion. What do we? What is the Fed going to do, and how does that play into everything else? It has been a Fed-driven market. All this liquidity has definitely been pushing people out of fixed income and the limitations of fixed income managers, and has been pushing to, to, towards equities and other higher risky assets. How does that play out? How does the Fed back away from that? I think that's going to be to your point, Lisa, earlier, a very big question. And we don't know how that's going to play out just yet. I think the odds that it actually just ends up continuing in a more quiet way are pretty high to me. But in the end, at some point, they're going to have to do something that's a little bit different than that. And how are markets going to take that? Yeah, how are markets going to take that? And I wonder, though, Sarah, whether that's so far afield in the future right now, uh, any sort of normalization that we can continue down this road with regards to the pricing that we're seeing in equities, the pricing that we're seeing in fixed income and the pricing that we're seeing, frankly, in some of these alternative assets. Well, I think if you'd asked anybody four or five years ago, even before the pandemic, you would have said, no, the Fed's going to have to exit their strategy and this is this can't continue forever. And here we are, you know, how many years after the financial crisis, still with some very unusual monetary measures globally. And I think that just the rates coming down again in Europe also makes the U.S. look more attractive. I mean, the German 10-year got up to, I think, negative 10 basis points and now is back lower than that. So I think the U.S. does look better, relatively speaking, but it's still really tough. And I think it's going to be difficult to see how we get out of this. But at the same time, to your point, I think we could keep going with this a lot longer than people think we can. Sarah, do you have any earnings visibility? 15 days to June 30, we regroup, Alcoa comes out, JP Morgan will start the bank earnings. Soiree, do you have any visibility on what earnings look like coming up? I think this has been such an unusual time frame for so many reasons that it's very difficult to see earnings visibility. I was looking back at some of the banking earnings and what the estimates were and what they came out with were so wildly different. You know, some things are more easy or more simple to predict than banking earnings, which I think are very tough to predict. But in the scheme of things, no, I think it's very tough to say we know what earnings are going to be, except that right now people are out there spending money, so they're going to be higher. The question is how much and for how long. Sarah, thank you so much. Sarah Hunt with us today with Alpine Woods Capital on a portfolio construction and uh, the view forward. He has seen this before. Michael Holland joins us now from Holland and Company, uh, looking at the idea of careful securities analysis, listening to managements and moving forward with a more calm and stable approach than the trading. Michael Holland, let's start with the meme trading now. When does this go away or are we going to live with meme trading forever? Um, likely not forever, Tom. Uh, by the way, good to see the three of you. Uh, the reality is that, that all of these things do go away, but you just don't know how long they take to go away. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be real fast to get out of your cash position and start shorting Thank the stocks you. right now. So, Michael, you just uh, are saying music to Tom's ears. Why do you think that people ought to be holding some cash right now, given the fact that there's extreme accommodation from central banks and ongoing fiscal spending? Lisa, the, the, uh, uh, the, the history that Tom talks about, the, the decades I've been on, what happens is when you get to this point where the complacency is, is actually pretty well earned because the Federal Reserve right now is doing what it's doing. You listen to Carl Weinberg uh, and his uh, testimony in the last couple of days. I think you have very smart people saying things can be pretty good uh, for an extended period of time because of the Fed. Having said that, Tom said earlier in the show, 39% increase over the last 12 months, meme trading stocks, SPACs, et cetera, et cetera, all the stuff that the bears talk about. Both, both uh, uh, camps have very smart people in them. 
either or both could be right for some period of time. Having said that, I really like an all-weather portfolio so that when things go in the direction no one expects, you're saying, I'm still okay. Uh, I'd like to be a, a survivor in these markets. All right. Well, let's talk about that survival here. Uh, I, I am curious, Michael, why would anyone buy into the case here that the Fed can sort of orchestrate this proverbial soft landing? I don't think you buy in remain 100%. That's exactly the, the right question. In fact, the soft landing may not happen, and it may happen. I think it's, it's it, I'm probably in the school, it probably could be a little messy, but I, but I have no reason to think my prediction would be any good or as good as the three of yours um, or Carl Weinberg's or anyone else's. So nobody knows the answer to that. Will it be a soft landing? Having said that, it might be, which means that to have 100% triple levered is probably not the preferred position in the stock market. On the other hand, having some cash in case it's wrong, uh, you, you'll feel better at the, at the end of the day because you will survive. Michael Holland, when you look at the accounting statements of these companies, it speaks of fundamental analysis. Does fundal, a fundamental analysis have a value here? Securities analysis have a value here when you see the ratios we're living with? Uh, absolutely, Tom, because when you get to a time like this, if, if you are going to uh, inch back into the equity market sometime in the next decade, what you want to have is managements who have financial statements that tell you, as in the case of J.P. Morgan, for example, you referred to them earlier in the show, uh, they, they show you why they have fortress-like balance sheets, what the prospects are for their trading revenues, uh, uh, having been so great in the past. There's a, there's a goldmine of information in those financial statements, and that's part of why I've, I've been able to survive myself by paying attention to things just like that. You can't, those are kind of immutable things. Facts are uh, stubborn things, as, as, it's, as it's been said. Michael, there's a spectrum of risk and return and the idea here of there are times to go hard into risk for that return and then there are times to accept very little return for not being very risky. I don't need to tell you this, but where are you right now on that spectrum? A perfect question, Lisa, because uh, centuries ago, uh, a very successful investor named Rothschild said, uh, buy when there's blood in the streets. Uh, we're certainly not seeing blood in the streets right now. We're seeing the opposite. We're seeing a Federal Reserve, which has uh, given a, a pass to anyone who uh, wants to see uh, assets of any kind go up. So it's uh, time to have some cash, as you said before. So on the risk spectrum, I'm saying you know, you're tilting uh, over the middle to the, to, the, to the area where you, you have to show some caution lights. For sure. Yeah. 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 But I mean, showing caution, let's say you, you don't want to necessarily go into cash or move a, a, a large allocation into cash here. You want to stay invested in the market and hopefully uh, take part in whatever upside might actually be left here. Uh, is there safety to be found in that thinking? Yeah, yeah Ruben. I, I think uh, Tom's uh, question earlier about fundamental analysis is, is related to, to the answer to your question. Um, Oracle is going to report uh, after the close tonight. Uh, I saw the, the stock there a few months ago trading at a quite low multiple. Uh, the prospects for the company, a, a management that has shown itself over the years to um, get it right. And my guess is what they're doing, they, they have a report tonight, maybe there'll be a lousy report and it'll go straight down. But I, I think there are companies, J.P. Morgan will be in that category, General Motors with Mary Barrett. I think that there are, there are places in the market where you can find opportunities, but you have to work at it. Michael Holland, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it this morning with Holland and Company, the chairman and the founder there.
Joseph Song joins working with Bank of America as their U.S. economist with Ethan Harris and the team. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. I like the Bank of America tweaks your GDP numbers. You go from a first quarter of prosperity to the boom, you know, a little bit of an adjustment here of the second quarter. What is the clarity that you and Michelle Meyer have on third quarter GDP? Thanks for having me. Um, look, we're, we're still very bullish on the U.S. economy right now. You know, we're still looking for 7% growth this year. Uh, obviously, today's retail sales report was definitely on the weaker side, but we were expecting that. We were expecting negative prints for all the major aggregates. Um, but we, we still see strength uh, in the consumer. If you look at our car data, um, mm -hmm. everything outside of retail sales, you know, grew roughly around 6% on a month-over-month -month basis. So all that, it's, all that spending is happening on the service side. We saw a lot of strength uh, uh, at the end of the month in May uh, right. uh, around Memorial Day uh, with lodging, travel, uh, restaurant spending, really, really uh, picking up momentum. And early in June, we're, we're seeing that carry through. So you get through June 30, you go to Q3. I've got question marks on it uh, for radio and TV. How do you guys frame up Q3? Is it a, is it a better tone than where you were 90 days ago? Well, you know, we don't think that the, the strength that we see in the second quarter will necessarily continue or will be sustained at the at the very extraordinary levels that we're expecting in Q2. We're looking for double-digit GDP growth. Uh, it will it will soften a bit, but it'll still be well, well above trend, suggesting the consumer is spending. And remember, there's actually more fiscal aid coming online in Q3 with the child tax credit. So a lot of middle to lower income households will have more dollars to spend. Joseph, let's talk about the pendulum of stagflation, as Tom so elegantly put. This question of whether people are less inclined to spend yeah. as prices go up. Are we seeing signs of that, or is this data completely irrelevant to that based on this changing of the, uh, of the composition of spending? Yeah, I think Mike is correct in that it's, it's tough to suss out what is the demand and supply effects going on right now. Um, you know, obviously, there is probably some effect with higher prices in the goods sector. But you know, when we look at our car data, real spending is still up double digits relative to 2019 levels. So uh, even if there's some softening in the good sector, uh, clearly those dollars are being shifted over to areas where there's still you know, really strong demand. All right. Yeah. I mean, as we look at these uh, uh, May numbers uh, here, Joseph, I mean, we should point out these April numbers did get uh, revised higher here on that month over month number. Of course, we were pretty much flat on, on the previous reading. That's being revised uh, to up 0.9 uh, percent. I, I am curious that when you look at the numbers that we've had here on the retail side, retail sales side, uh, and the come down that we're having now, how much are you factoring in the government support and the potential pullback of some of that support, meaning the expanded unemployment benefits? And I guess you can sort of fold in uh, some of the fiscal stimulus that may or may not be coming down the pipe. Yeah, I mean, that that is um, partially in our kind of slowdown in Q3. But remember that uh, as these unemployment insurance benefits get, uh, get gets pulled back, you'll see more workers re-enter the labor market. And they're actually entering a labor market that is very hot right now. And wages are starting to climb higher. So there actually may not be such a major fiscal cliff where they're losing their benefits and not seeing the same sort of uh, comparable wage levels. There actually might be just you know, substituting 
uh, benefits for uh, you know wage wages. So right. um, you know income may soften a bit from here on out, but yeah. we still are very constructive on the consumer and the and the household balance. Okay, sheet. well, unfortunately, then that sort of circles me back to sort of the half uh, glass half empty scenario here, where if those uh, if those wage pressures continue higher and that does pull people back into the labor market, then then do we have to then start talking about those inflationary pressures and what kind of drag that might mean uh, for economic activity? Yeah. So, you know, in, in the fall, you know, we think that, that that those kind of labor supply constraints will start to ease. So the, the higher wages that we're seeing today won't continue to keep climbing higher. Right. We'll, we'll reach kind of a city equilibrium where there's more workers that re-enter the labor market as unemployment insurance expires. Also, childcare has been a major issue during the pandemic, and we've heard from a lot of major school districts that they'll be going back to traditional in-person learning. So childcare will be baked in for a lot of parents, which will allow them to re-enter the labor markets as well. So that's gonna, we think that, you know, that, that'll lead to greater supply in the labor market, and that will have a, mm -hmm. at least a temporarily a cooling effect on wages, which will keep uh, inflation uh, well, well kept. Joseph Sung, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Bank of America. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.